And he was saying that he got sent a quote by a friend that said, failure is a bruise, not a tattoo. And it was really interesting. I I thought about it for a while after listening to it and I kept repeating that quote. And I said, you know what? It's absolutely right. And it made me realise I hadn't failed with what I was doing because that was the thing. It was such a big sense of failure because obviously I parted ways mutually. And uh, and I kept thinking about that. And I thought, you know what? I haven't failed. It's not going to be here forever. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Burnt Chef Journal. Hosted by myself, Chris Hall, the founder of The Burnt Chef Project. This week's guest is Harry Kimberley, who has recently joined The Burnt Chef Project as one of our ambassador volunteers to help us continue to spread the word about the work that we're doing in terms of destigmatizing mental health and mental illness, as well as providing support to those around the world who may also want to share their experiences with um, one of our ambassadors and Harry's come from a hospitality background himself and he was talking to us today about his journey through hospitality, his experiences of mental health and mental illness and also what he'd like to bring to the Burnt Chef team. So I hope you, you enjoy this uh, this week's chat. We went off on a few different tangents. Uh, he's a great guy and very much look forward to uh, to allowing you to listen to this conversation. On the surface, we at Lamb Weston are a leading global frozen potato product provider, but hospitality is in our roots. We are helping to chip away the stigma of mental health in the industry and truly believe in well-being through potatoes, which is why we are in full support of the Burnt Chef project. If you want to find out more about how we provide well-being through the humble potato or try a free sample of our award-winning products, such as our proper British chips, The Dukes, Follow us on Instagram at UK. So this week I'm joined by Harry, who has recently become an ambassador for the Burnt Chef Project and oversees two restaurants currently. So Harry, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you doing? Very well, sir. Very well. It is Monday, yeah. so uh, it's, uh, you know, once we've got almost through today and uh, we're on onto a home streak after that. Yeah, we're on course, aren't we? We're on course after that. Yeah, definitely. And whereabouts in the world are you at this moment in time, Harry? I'm, I'm actually in London at the moment. I'm at home in London uh, for the weekend. Um, I'll be going back to work tomorrow over in... Uh, so we've got one restaurant in Bournemouth, one restaurant in Southampton. So I'll be uh, running back and forth around there next week. But for now, I'm, I'm having a few days a few days respite at home. So it's been nice. Yeah, well, quite a... you know. Quite a, a mixed mixture of areas there. You've got the city life of London and then the, uh, mm. well, I can only assume the uni life of Bournemouth uh, uh, and Southampton at the weekend, hey? Yeah, absolutely. It's quite nice. I think I've always got a bit bored in one place. So to be able to mix it up between sort of city, beach, I don't know how you'd associate Southampton, let's just call it Southampton, um, is uh, it's a nice mix. It's a really nice mix. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you have to go through the New Forest to get to Southampton. That's right on its doorstep. Yeah. So you've got like everything that you need in those in that little triangle you have you have I'd going on. I have a very scenic day, I'd say. <laughs> very scenic day. I bet. And so what is it that you um what is it that you do currently? Um, so I'm one of the guys that runs the the Babu G restaurants. Um so it's quite a niche concept. It's uh it's a vegan and vegetarian Indian. Um, although to be fair, if you've 
if you've been to India, I haven't personally, um, or have a have a high knowledge of Indian food, it's probably not quite as niche as it sounds. Um, most of the food out there actually is vegan and veggie. Although I think to the British public and myself included, um, I was unaware of quite a lot of the dishes we we were going to do until speaking to the chefs and, and trying them and find out where they came from. I didn't really know much more than a, a Cormor or a Vindaloo at the time. Um, but no, there's some there's some great stuff. You know, really good. When, once you put the foot down, food down on the table, there's some lovely colours. Lovely colours. It makes for a really nice, really nice, well-presented well presented table. So uh, we opened our second restaurant in Boscombe back in May. I'm going to say the 18th. It was when everything could reopen again indoors because we didn't have any outdoor space in either. Um, so we were just trading as a dark kitchen takeaway whilst doing the um, all the decorating the inside. Um, but my God, it's been a nightmare getting chefs and stuff like that. As you know, it's been well documented the uh, the hiring crisis that hospitality has at the moment. And I think as everything was starting to get back to normal in England, things were opening up again. Um, obviously, you had the Delta variant in India, so a lot of the chefs had to go back home. And obviously, you could never deny them that. Of course, you've got to be with your family. Um, but then they couldn't get back. So for a while, we were trading three days in one restaurant, three days in the other, and our chefs were just running back and forth, bless them. They worked so hard. They were amazing. So, uh, but yeah, I think we're coming back out the other side now. So uh, we're open properly. And all the little things that used to be, prob well, used to be problems in hospitality now just seem so easy. I think that um, that hindsight perspective has done, done wonders for that in a way. Yeah, it's definitely given us that aha moment, hasn't it? This uh, this whole mm. pandemic, and it's put a lot of us into a position now where you go, oh, perhaps the way thing we did things wasn't wasn't great before, and we've had it, you know, we've had it quite tough now for the last eighteen months. So let's see what we can do to change that. Mm. Yeah, it's a unique opportunity, I think, to kind of reset as an industry. I don't think, unless it was going to take something big like this for it to happen, I think there was no other way for it to stop and sort of begin again without without something like COVID happening. Yeah, well, they, they call it the great reset, don't they, at this moment in time? And mm. it's, uh, you know, a reset of perceptions, a reset of financial equilibriums, all sort of things are going on at this moment in time. But it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of work for us to do to be able to start to to change what has been quite a historic, uh, historically poor, poorly run um, sort of segments of the se of the sector, really. Absolutely. So, tell me about yourself, then, Harry. What's what's your background? How did you end up uh, end up where you are at this moment, darting around from some of the most beautiful places in the country in London? <laughs> um, to be honest, I got into hospitality in a very fluky way. Um, so basically, I was in uh, I went to a boarding school, a uh, boarding school called Claysmore. I don't know if you know it. It's in sort of Blandford, Charlesby area, sort of the the countryside of Dorset. And uh, I came home for the weekend and we just moved to, a, my mum and I just moved to a flat on Boston Overcliff. Um, so she, obviously I'd been at school, she was doing all the moving and uh, we were driving back and she just said, oh, I think we should get a takeaway tonight. You know, we've got a lot of unpacking to do, sort of can't be bothered to cook, etc. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, amazing, we're getting a Domino's. And I was very excited. And uh, she said, no, she was like, there's this place that's open around the corner uh, called Kotai Tapas um and she was like I had something from there the other day it was really good let's go there so I was like oh 
you know, I don't know if I'm going to like that, to be honest with you. And to be fair, I probably never had had Thai food before, to my knowledge at the time. Um, but we did it and I had to phone through the order. And when it when I came to looking up the phone number, they said they were looking for staff. So I was like, okay, that's cool. You know, I just turned 17. The summer holidays were coming up. I needed a summer job. So I dropped my CV in when I got there and uh, managed to get an interview, which was cool. Um, but fun funnily enough, I had to then come home again for a day to do the interview. And uh, I come back and I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I've got some clothes at home. It's not a problem. You know, because obviously most of my stuff was at school. And my mum, bless her, came to pick me up again, drove me home. And I got back and I just had nothing, nothing to wear for this interview. So the only thing I could find were these really small red chinos that just didn't fit me at all. But I had to wear them. So I put those on and then I'm trying to polish my shoes a bit frantically. And I got shoe polish all over my shirt. So it just wasn't going well. And the only thing I could find was this like blue pinstriped shirt. So I turn up, I'm walking to the door and I've got these these tight red chinos on that just don't fit me. This pinstripe shirt and these really bad, badly uh, polished black shoes. And I look like a clown and I'm already thinking it's over. It's done. I'm, I'm, I'm no way I'm getting this. I, and because the trousers were so tight, I think I was walking like a penguin, like it wasn't good. <laughs> and I um, I get to the front door and one of the managers, Katie, um, who's a good friend of mine now, she opened the door and the first thing she said was, oh my God, I love your trousers. And thank God she said that because it instantly calmed me down, <laughs> instantly made me stop worrying about it. Um, but then I ended up not going back to school, um, literally simply for the reason that my mum was always a single parent and we just ran out of money. So I ended up staying with Co. Um, we had a we had a sort of our Christmas party, I think sort of February of the following year, it would have been 2014. So I'd been there about six months and they were doing an awards night as well with it. And I just thought, well, I'm not going to win anything. I've only been here five minutes. Um, I'm just here to enjoy myself. And uh, I ended up getting employee of the year. Um, so that was, that was awesome. That was amazing. And I just thought, you know, maybe, maybe this could be a bit more for me as well and obviously leaving school I think when you're at that sort of small boarding school you're in such a close-knit family and there was quite a lot of similarities between the family I had there and the family I was developing at Co as well so everyone was a little bit older than me had different experiences um, and I was learning a hell of a lot um, so I started at Bournemouth College and I did travel and tourism um, which I didn't really enjoy it wasn't really for me but I had to do it because I I messed up school so badly. I, I just didn't get my arse into gear until my, my last year. No, sorry, my first year of A-levels. Um, and also the the colleges don't really like you working a lot alongside your course, especially mm. um, especially in the midweek. So I've kind of had to hide that from them, how much I was working. Um, but to be honest, I think I'd much prefer to have a student that's working than going out and partying all the time which is what the others were doing but it's mm. obviously they've got rules and criterias to follow so you have to respect that um so i did six years with co and i i loved it I was there for six years loved every minute of it i couldn't look back on it any more fondly if i tried um i was a training manager with them at 18 um and just got to be a part of a company that we all grew together so when i started there they just opened their fourth restaurant and then when i left they had 12. Mm. um we did loads of events. We did co-lounge on the beach where we basically just put a whole restaurant on the groin at the beach, um, which was so much fun. And then 
I then became a GM at 20 over there, which was just a dream for me because I'd worked with such good managers there. Um, so to kind of be voiced in that same bracket, not that I was at that level at all, to be fair, but to be in that that title bracket for me was incredible. Um, I started over in the Morning Christchurch when I when I did that. So I went to go run the Morning Christchurch and we were having one of those every year, our yearly hospitality staffing crisis that seems to happen yearly where we just couldn't get staff. So we couldn't get an assistant manager at all. So it was just me there on my own. And uh, fortunately, I had this um, I had this really good area manager called Ander who just really helped support me and calm me down over that period because otherwise I I just don't know what I would have done to be fair because we just had no staff and I was nervous about doing it at such a young age as well mm. um, of how it was going to go um, but he was he was fantastic he was always really good with me so and also I think being in a town called town in Christchurch there's you're quite there's quite slim pickings from who you can get it's a, I don't know if you know Christchurch well Chris but it's a I think it's town a bit more of a... Oh, it is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, uh, You should have knocked up. on the door. Yeah, well, do, do you know what? Despite the fact oh. that um, uh, I know quite a few of the co-teams co now, I'd never, ever visited oh, the co-tie, ever. Oh, really? Um, and obviously, uh, there's only there's only a couple now, hey? So, uh, yeah, I've missed out. Yeah, there's four cool now. Missed yeah, out. there's only there's four of them now. But, um, yeah, as you know, in Christchurch, there's... It's not a big, it's not a big town, so it's quite slim for the amount of people that are gonna knock on the door for jobs. So uh, it was one of those. It was a, it's a hard place to have a staffing crisis in for sure. Mm. Yeah, certainly as your demographic is, Jim uh, tends to be a lot older around the Christchurch area, so it's a great place for people who want to retire, but not necessarily, you know, people who are young and dynamic and want to want to consider a career in hospitality. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So in the end, we just, we had to be creative with it in the way. So because I because I was so big on bringing people through from a young age, because that's what happened to me, and I was always very grateful. I was thought, you know, how can we how can we do this? Because the company at the time had just been bought by an equity firm. Uh, one of the original owners stayed on, um, but obviously, inevitably, with you know equity firms, things had to change a little bit in the way we were doing things um so Andy the boss that had stayed on I called him one day and I just said look I think as a company we're starting to lose our identity a bit you know the buyouts happened and this equity firm has come in everything's been a bit crazy but what made us successful was bringing through our staff and and kind of training them in our mold etc um especially young people um and I mean there was a point where we had 10 people on the waiting list wanting to be managers within the company um but then at that point we had none and I thought it's going to go one way or another. He's going to tell me to mind my own business or he'll he'll be productive <laughs> with me on it. And he was, to be fair. We put this plan together and he let me run with it. And we basically decided to create the um, a co-training academy. So we went down to Bournemouth College and we did interviews with students that were doing business and hospitality. Um, um, we ran trials with them um, and bought the best ones on to do work placement. So it was a little bit like The Apprentice where they had to go through stages to kind of come and do it because we couldn't take too many on. Um, so the end goal for them was they'd get an opportunity to have a job at the end of it, basically. And 
we had one boy that came and joined us in actually in Christchurch with me and he spent about six months on the floor kind of just learning about the business and I think it was his first job as well so he was kind of learning the trade as well mm-hmm. and then he came on to be a trainee manager which was always the end goal and then when I left he was the assistant manager to the new GM coming in um so whether he stays in hospitality or not for his whole career I don't know but I always said you know if we can affect these young people in some way that is that is amazing I'd be proud of that for sure so uh yeah that's kind of what we did and then I think after that I'd been there six years and it was it was time for something new I'd, I'd started to kind of get itchy feet a little bit and I wanted to I wanted to do something different I wanted to live somewhere different so uh I moved to London to, to have a bit of a fresh challenge nice and so did you end up working in London as well uh, staying in hospitality yeah, I did. So I went to um, I went to this place called Archer Street. Um, so they've got one in Soho and one in Clapham. And uh, just to give you a bit of background on it, it's amazing. So it's um, it's uh, they call it like bespoke cocktail bars, don't they? It's a fancy way of putting it. Um, mm. Creative cocktail bars in their own right, experimental, etc. I think was the word they use. Um, and all of their front of house staff are performers or West End performers in their own right. Mm. So you've got some really cool people. Um, one of them's just gone off to play Tom Jones in a, I think it's called What's Up Pussycat, um, is a new show about Tom Jones in Birmingham. So you've got some really cool people there. Um, and what happens is, is you've got, you've got it as a bar, but then every sort of five, 10 minutes, one of them will jump up on a couple of tables and they all start performing one at a time. Um, so it's really fun. It's really fun, but I just, I didn't understand, I I completely underestimated how relentless the job would be, to be completely honest with you. Um, after starting there, it was going really well. Um, and they asked if I'd moved from the Clapham Bar to the, the flagship one in Soho, um, which was a little bit further away. I was living in Putney at the time, so it was a bit further away. But um, I think in London, you have to commute, don't you? It's just part of the parcel of being there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just completely underestimated it. I mean, the hours were crazy. I think over the the winter period we were doing about 70 hour weeks one day off and then because of the closing times so the the venue closed at one and the back of house jobs at the end of the night were so well they were just so long essentially so you're leaving at about three you'll get home at four then you go again the next day so you've got that one day off and you've got to think do i get some extra sleep and i'm i'm ready for next week or have I not seen my friends or anything in so long? It'd be really nice to go and have a day with them, but then I'm not going to sleep. Or actually, I, I haven't got any shirts. I need to do some washing. But again, I still need to sleep. So it was it was just like trying, it was trying to find that balance and it was just impossible. Mm. Um, I mean, there, I think there was a point over Christmas where I had a half an hour break and I was like, right, I need to go to the shop and get some more shirts for the rest of the week. So I'm not going to have time to wash them if I want to get some rest. Um, so it was that relentlessness. And I think coming from a small independent restaurant group in co to being amongst that and i mean there were staff that were having to take that were taking drugs just to get through shifts which wasn't condemned obviously no sorry was condemned they were they were let go for it but it it just shows you the the ruthlessness of the job over there um which i don't regret it was a very good eye opener but i think the fatigue really started to affect my work and the attitude there was you do a 12 hour shift, you will go out together, you will get drunk, you come back the next day, um, repeat all week. Um, 
But obviously, I moved to London to try something different, enjoy the city, etc. So, and I've got a lot of friends up here. So, I wanted to always have a good career. That was always important to me. But of course, you need balance as well. And I just didn't feel like I was getting that there. Yeah, it seems like all or nothing, which is um, what what hospitality has got a, a you know, there's a lot of negativity around the fact that if you come to work, people know it's, it's likely to be long hours and you have to sacrifice and, and many people have sacrificed health or, or marriages mm. or relationships for it. So, you know, for what at what stage did you suddenly realise that actually this, you know, I need I need that equilibrium back in life again? And how did you deal with that? Um. I just thought, I remember thinking at the time, if I can just get through the Christmas period, start the new year and I'll start thinking about what I want to do. So I actually got offered a trial and an interview at a restaurant group in London. They had three restaurants. They had one in Marlebone, one in Chelsea and one in Shoreditch, I'm going to say. They were all based on Peruvian cuisine. Um, so you'd got one that was a seafood-based Peruvian cuisine, you'd got another in Marleybane that was a mixture, and then the one in Shoreditch, I think they call it Shifa, so it was um, all the Asian influences of Peruvian cuisine, basically, and uh, I went in for my trial, and I was just mesmerised, like, everything about the restaurants I loved, the food, the service, like, everything, the way they looked was incredible, I mean, you go, you went in there, and their cloakroom was a load of wardrobes, and they were just to the sides of the restaurant. So you almost, it's like opening doors to Narnia to find your coats. And oh, they nice. kind of set them up like that. Um, everything about it was really cool. And I did the trial and it went quite well. And I remember going home and I just, I remember saying, oh, I'd be so gutted if I didn't get a call back about it. Um, and I did, which was great. So I went back the next day and I always remember leaving. And one of the other managers was like, oh, mate, you know, well done tonight. Good to meet you just so you know if you get a call back the next stage is meeting the owner and I said oh, okay cool great and he just looked at me and just went good luck with that and he walked off and I thought oh, it'll be all right you know I felt like I could hold my own so I, I was kind quietly confident about it and uh, so that's what I did I went to go and meet the owner and we sat in this um, they had little private dining rooms that were all set like um, old style Peruvian lounges yeah. Um, so again, really cool, really well thought of. And we're sitting in one of these, and uh, he starts talking. He's telling me, you know, about the business and the history of it, etc. And then it's like someone just flicked a switch. He starts. He's screaming. He's shouting. Um, he's flipping chairs. He's whacking the tables. Oh, I'm just thinking, what the hell's gone on? I'm trying to remain very calm. And uh, I looked at the HR manager, and I, as if to say, you know, what the hell is going on here? And she just, she gave me this subtle nod as if to say, you know, don't worry, it's okay. Um, just, just ride it out. And I think now I look back on it, I think he just wanted to see how much he could throw at me without me biting back, just to see what my threshold was. Um, clever tactic or bonkers, I don't know, to be fair. But um, right. at the end, I just turned and I said, well, look, do you want me or do you not? And he said, no, it's it's the other way around. And I said, well, look, if you want me to come and work here or I need to have X, Y, and Z. Um, and if I can't do that, then I'm probably not the right person for you. And he just looked at me for ages and in my head, I'm thinking, oh no, please don't kill me. He was, he, <laughs> it was getting st- terrifying, terrifying. Um, but then he was like, no, cool. I'll send you a contract later. 
And I left and I was so happy because, like I said, I loved the venues, absolutely loved them. But in my head, I was like, what the hell have I just witnessed here? It was uh, it was bonkers. Um, and it, But it all started really well. It was going really well. Um, and then the lockdown happened, which I think is the uh, the down period of most people you talk to at the moment in hospitality, isn't it? You get to that mm. that period and it's like, yes, but then lockdown. Um, um, basically, we had to start the lockdown with, again, like most businesses, getting rid of all the staff. Um, this was before, it was that week where they told, the government had told people not to come to restaurants or they advised against it but hadn't yeah. spoken about furlough, we weren't in lockdown, etc. Um, so we started it by telling everyone bar three three people um, that they didn't have jobs anymore. And obviously we didn't have furlough at the time. There was one guy who was over in England from Australia. Um, and I'd actually, there was a few people I'd asked to come and join me from Archer Street when I left. He was one of them. And I just remember sitting on the terrace uh, making these phone calls at the restaurant. It was at night. and. Uh, just remember thinking, what the hell am I doing to these people? You know, obviously they all understood, but there was tears. You could tell people were scared. Um, obviously, it's what we had to do. Um, it was the same with the chefs. We had a big team of chefs and we had to gather them all together and say, look, half of you don't have jobs. The other half are going to have to take a huge wage deduction while this happens. And it obviously it was heartbreaking to watch. Along with the fact you're worried about your own future, your family's future. And also there's this virus that's, getting people really unwell that we didn't really know anything about either um because there'd been a no announcement that was coming a few days later and that's when i think for me the mental health side of things really started to hit um i was very lucky i spent lockdown in the countryside in dorset um but it was the first time where i'd stopped and obviously that gives you time to reflect on a lot of things mm. and i think i've always been very good at putting things to one side um and moving on because i think in hospitality it's kind of easy to do that if you get into a habit of it because you're always on the go um yeah. well i didn't realize at the time obviously that just doesn't go away it just sits there waiting and then when you're vulnerable bang it will all come out the closet um so i just started to struggle really with low moods bad sleep um bad dreams etc um and then I started to have, I have my first anxiety attack. Um, and it's something I would always say I'll never forget, but I'll never truly remember. Um, I remember I was in the shower and it was like my body just went into complete shock out of nowhere, just complete shock. I and mean, then the next thing I just remember seeing the shower floor and that was it. And uh, it really freaked me out, really scared me in a way. Um, but I didn't want to tell anyone about it because, again, there's that whole male stereotype of being a strong man etc um and i'm quite stubborn so i didn't want to speak to anyone about it until i was ready always yeah as most people do uh-huh i hear you i hear you it must have been terrifying though it was really strange because i obviously i'd i knew of people that suffered with mental health but i could i could never pretend to understand it i always tried to be understanding but i never properly understood it because i never I'd never felt at the time I'd been through it. Mm. Um, and I kind of just felt my way back through lockdown. And then obviously we went, I went back to work when the restaurants were allowed to reopen. Um, and it was really strange because obviously pre-lockdown, everything was going very well. And then we came back and it was like everything had changed, but for the worse. 
I think now we're getting back to a period where after having a couple more lockdowns where everything's starting to get better in hospitality. But then it was just, it was the complete opposite. Um, we had the hierarchy of the company coming in, they were abusing the staff, um, really working people to the bone and we're told if they don't like it, there's plenty, there's the rest of the country will need jobs and you'll just get replaced. So get on with it. It was kind of the attitude. Um, it was really hard to watch. So obviously as a, as a GM, you've kind of just got to try and keep everyone positive and understand, look, the guys have had their restaurant shut for three months, not a lot of support. They're really stressed, you know, and obviously you find yourself making excuses for it. Mm. Um, and we kind of just rode it out, but then eat out to help out came. Um, and we were like, like most places were absolutely full to the brim consistently from the moment we opened to the moment we closed. And, uh, one of the owners came in very drunk and just walked around every member of staff and said, your shit, your shit, your shit, all of you are pathetic and just went on this rampage. And obviously I was struggling myself before, like I say, but that was the final straw for me. I, I basically, we had this private dining room downstairs and I went downstairs and just said, look, you, you've got to understand, you know, you've come in at eight 30 tonight. Some of these people have been here since half 10 this morning, barely any breaks, barely any time to eat. You, you know, you need to be, you need to lay off them. They're going as fast as they can. And obviously, and I understood it, but we were trying to make as much money as possible with as little of people as possible to try and get some of that cost back. Yeah. And I understood it. COVID had been awful for hospitality. I'm sure most places are in that position. Um, but I said, you know, I get it, but there has to be a bit more understanding here. Um, but I also knew in doing that, if you stood up to that owner and didn't get him to understand a point of view, you're, you're basically finished there. I've seen it happen to other people. Um, and I was kind of prepared for it, but it, yeah, obviously I didn't get him to understand by any means. And, uh, the turnover was just huge and surprise, surprise, we couldn't get people to replace, um, replace the ones we'd lost. Cause then we had another staffing crisis, didn't we? Not a lot of people wanted to come back to hospitality, especially after mm. we out to help out. Um, the people that left just secured other jobs elsewhere. They didn't get replaced. So the pressure you're under is unbelievable. Um, fortunately we had quite a small loyal group of employees that the ones that had come over from archer street etc um they stuck around which was which was great because they like i say they were very loyal um but the whole situation just had such a bad effect on my mental state um because it was one of those i knew if i wanted to keep my job then you have to almost be abusive like they were being otherwise they saw you as weak they saw they saw kindness as a weakness so but which I, just, I refuse to do yeah i just find i find that I, I i know that people need to work to be able to earn money to survive but to be to to go against your you know your personality and your values and to try to fit into what you think you're expected to be just for just to earn money is it seems it seems crazy from the outside now doesn't it but whilst you're in it mm. and you're in the thick of it it seems like the completely the right decision to do to mold yourself into something that you're you're not um in order to to feel or to show that you you're in control but actually it's the complete opposite thing you should be doing and and that's what this industry needs it needs voices and people standing up and going actually that's not right no, that's not acceptable and that's not how i'm going to work and i would encourage all of my team to do the same 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and the good thing for me at the time also was that about a month after is when I'd agreed to come and do Babu G as well. Obviously, they didn't know that. And with building the restaurant, it could have been another six to eight months, to be fair, because we didn't know if we were going to get any more lockdowns. So it was a bit easier to not feel as threatened in that way, um, or it should have been anyway. But I just got so obsessed with with fighting them on it because obviously being a GM and having your your group of staff, you almost feel like you're paid to protect your staff well, in you, that way. You, you are, yeah. I mean, you have a duty of yeah. care. Plus also you're surrounded by your team members who you've invested time and energy and built relationships with. They're your peers. So why wouldn't you want to support them and protect them? Yeah, exactly. Um, the issue was it just got a bit out of control for me, really. I just became so obsessed with it. Um, and it just took my focus completely off the customer and started to affect my work. Um, and I think it's one of those things, once you get into a spiral like that, it's quite hard to pull yourself out of it. Mm. Um, like I, And I think that's when a lot of family and friends started to realise and say, you know, Harry, something's not quite right with you here. Something's not, something's going wrong. Um, and I think a lot of them didn't really know how to react to my behaviour at the time because I guess it's just something they weren't used to from me to be fair and I think normally I was quite good at being a a strong person but I think them seeing that complete frailty in how I was conducting myself was difficult what sort of what sort of things what sort of examples can you give how are you different um all I could like I say all I could think about was I I became obsessed with things I became obsessed with having to protect my staff and fighting these bosses and how could I do this how could I do that and my I started to lose my temper over stuff and I was acting erratically and irrationally um at the same time I was still struggling at home I wasn't sleeping which probably contributed to that to be fair and it, it kind of got to the point where I was having to wake up about two hours before I was actually meant to leave because I knew I'd wake up and I'd go through all these motions I'd go through the anxiety attacks in the morning um etc and I, I knew that if I didn't set an alarm two hours earlier I probably wouldn't make it out I needed that time Crikey. so you're getting even less sleep trying to protect yourself from your body's reactions to the stressful situations you were in so it's almost like yeah. a never-ending well it is a never-ending cycle unless you break that really isn't it yeah and I think at the time all I could think of is that if I can just get this done where I, win. I was never going to win this argument, to be fair, but I thought, you know, if I can win this argument, I can I can look after my staff, then I'll start to feel better. And I just didn't realise that was just never going to happen. Never going to happen. Mm. Um, and I think when you're, when you're having these anxiety attacks and your heart is going so quickly for long periods and you're getting things like, you know, breathlessness, dizziness, it just really knocks you out, really exhausts you at the same time. So it's like having another layer of exhaustion well, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I was listening to a talk the other day about burnout and mm. why it's so damaging, and because you know burnout is habitual, long term, chronic stress, and the same with you know anxiety. If you're having regular anxiety attacks, your body is being pumped full of different hormones and stress levels, and you know you're 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 constantly having to be in this fight or flight mode, which is fine mm. if you're in a fight or flight mode for thirty seconds. And it happens once in a blue moon. But it's like trying to get into a, a boxing ring with Mike Tyson 
and go for 150 rounds at the same pace and then get out and then go back in and do the same thing. You just, you, you physically, it's impossible. And this is why, mm. you know, it sounds like you, you're in this situation where the anxiety attacks were having more of an impact on you. And as a result, mm. it was just driving you, uh, I guess it was suppressing your immune system. Were you getting more colds and coughs and things as well? I was, yeah. But at the time, I just put that down to the fact it was the winter, to be honest with you. Um, mm. But no, I was for sure. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't my healthiest by any means. So um, how did you get out? Of, like, How did you change? What sort of stage are you in, in now and how did you get there? Um. It's funny. So I, I was listening to a, uh, I was listening to a football podcast one morning. Um, I listened to a lot of podcasts just to, I found, this doesn't sound very weird, but I found the voices like being surrounded by talking and stuff quite calming. And uh, I was listening to one, I don't know if you're a football fan, Chris, but it was on, it was Gary Neville talking about his time in Valencia. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously his record there wasn't very good. And he said it was actually he was talking about his mental health when he got fired about how it plummeted because he's got all the press hammering him. And he was saying that he got sent a quote by a friend that said, "Failure is a bruise, not a tattoo." And it was really interesting. I I thought about it for a while after listening to it, and I kept repeating that quote. And I said, "You know what? He's absolutely right." And it made me realise. I hadn't failed with what I was doing because that was the thing. It was such a big sense of failure because obviously I parted ways mutually and uh, and I kept thinking about that. And I thought, Do you know what? I haven't failed. It's not going to be here forever. I was old, 24 at the time um, and I was going to move on and do a lot more, but only if I would let myself. So... I knew I needed to seek some help for sure. So I went to the doctor um, and I explained everything that had been going on. Um, and it took me a while. I think I probably had about five doctor's appointments booked before actually going through with it. And I just mm -hmm. kept cancelling and rearranging because, I, it, again, embarrassment, etc. Um, or then one day I would wake up and think, oh, well, I actually feel OK this morning. So I don't need to go anymore. I'm, I'm better. You know, everything's fine. And then... It's not, <laughs> as you know. Um, yeah. So I went to the doctor and they, I explained everything and they just said, look, I think you're suffering from anxiety and depression. Um, and it was, it was a horrible conversation. It just felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. Um, but also it was a bit of a relief because I thought, okay, someone's finally said that. If you've said that, then that, that's okay. I don't, because obviously I've been thinking it, but I needed someone to tell me that. Um, so I did, um, I did CBT for a little while um, and I also had a really good counsellor. Um, he, he was perfect for me. I think he, I was always very good when speaking to people about getting them to do the talking. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have to. Um, and he just wouldn't allow that at all. He wouldn't allow that. Even if we just sat there in silence, he would not allow it. Um, like oh, even really? if he asked yeah so even if uh he was like harry how are you and i was like yeah no i'm well how are you doing how's your day been he knew what i was doing he just went i'm fine but it's not about me it's about you and then he'd wait and uh obviously on zoom that can get awkward you're just looking at each other through a computer screen and um but he would prompt he would do things you know he'd wait a minute and then he'd say 
did you sleep well last night? You know, have you been sleeping? And uh, or how was work this week? Or what did you have for dinner last night? You know, oh, you should probably have some more veg with that. And he would he would do little prompts until he was essentially knocking on the door until it until I opened it. Um, and he he would then give me this little grin afterwards, as if to say, "Ha ha, I've won! I, you finally you finally opened up." Um, but he was fantastic. I always thought that I did the CBT and the counselling the wrong way round. To be honest with you, I always thought I probably should have done the counselling first, the CBT after. But I think that's more spe- me speculating. What What was anything. the difference for those who don't know? What was the difference between because for for many people and and perhaps even myself included. You'd think that the two are quite similar. Mm. Maybe it was the way I. Maybe it was the way that my sessions went. I'm not sure, but the the counselling was about me talking about, about talking through problems, essentially, um, and they would make me realise or help me to understand why I was thinking that about certain things and kind of helped me to understand what I was thinking it wasn't crazy and it wasn't me losing the plot or anything like that but you're you're thinking about it because it's this and if you delve deeper there's a background to that and you do that for this reason probably and they would never tell me this is what it is but they would say you're probably doing it because of this and then I then I'd have a think and I'd realize ah he's right there that that's exactly what it is it was like it was literally like putting equations together um and then the cognitive behavioural therapy, the way it was done with me, it was more about how to cope with things. Um, so how to cope with the panic attacks and the symptoms and, you know, how is it how is it going to make you feel and how are you going to protect yourself from that? Ah, so almost putting putting a band-aid over what the problem was, but not actually getting to the root cause and pulling the thorn out, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Which is why I always thought I did it the wrong way round. But to be fair, obviously, it was through... Um, so I did it through Talk Wandsworth. Um, and that's... You basically got what you were given at the time. So, which is not a problem. I mean, they, they're obviously only doing their best, of course. Um, and I didn't know any better, to be fair. Um but yeah, I think I always think I needed to do the counselling first to to get all of that out. And then if I still needed some help with the CBT, that would have been good. But I mean, both people that I worked with were, were wonderful. To be fair, I can't fault them. It's interesting because I did CBT. My, my experience of CBT was what your experience of counselling is. So a lot of like, okay. you know, a lot of long silences, a lot of, you know, why do you think that? You know what, what's going on, and how did you come to that conclusion, and and what can we do to sort of address that? But then there was a lot of delving back into things that you'd learn or decisions that you'd made at a very early age before you knew you had a better understanding of life and you know everything else, and you'd made these commitments to yourself to behave or to act or to think in a certain way, and you carry them through with you. But as you said earlier, chucking stuff into a closet hoping it goes away and then eventually that closet gets so full it's fit to burst and that ends up yeah you know going home and and trying to leave your family and leave your family home and <laughs> and then yeah, yeah. you know yeah you know the the reliance upon alcohol and and the blowouts at the weekends with, with drugs and other things just to try and you know have some sort of release from what's going on inside your ha- head it's 
Yeah, just try, trying to numb things, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and the, that sense of anger as well. You know, that do you, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're the same, but that that frustration where you're like, yeah, I'm going to drink a load tonight because I've got to get this out of my system, and then you wake mm-hmm. up in the morning and you feel worse, and you're like, oh, yeah, it didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Which I think is why exercise is so good, isn't it? I know my the guy I have for counselling was really big on making making sure I was exercising always for that reason to kind of to get that out of me in a way that wasn't damaging myself with things that I've never I've never done drugs but I, I do like a drink I don't drink a lot but um you know I do like to drink and uh obviously exercise is a much healthier way to do it isn't it yeah 100 percent. I wonder if there's any therapy or counseling that's actually you have to be moving at the same time to be able to do it because I think that would be great and if anyone's listening out there and who mm. already does this get in contact because we'd love to be able to utilize and and put people through that that form of therapy but yeah, exercise has this ability to unlock certain parts of your brain, doesn't it? When you when you're, you're all sweaty and mm. you're tired, once you've got all that adrenaline pumping through you and your serotonin levels are you know rising, it has this this mm. this magical healing property, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah, I mean, I always notice the difference if I go to work and having not done any exercise in the morning, in the way I'll function. Always, I think if I've gone and done, even if it's a 20 minute run you know it doesn't have to be anything long but if I've just got up in the morning got a bit of air in my lungs got moving it um, got a little bit of a sweat on it makes a huge difference to how I function over the day I don't I don't know why but my brain definitely works a lot better yeah well I think when you take it you strip it all back to when we were roaming the plains of Africa getting you know hunting saber-toothed tigers or getting hunted by you know we we our needs were very simple back then we needed to stay safe stay Mm. secure reproduce because we're animals and that's that's the life cycle Mm. but we were also we were migrationary so we always moved you know Mm. and those sort of key things when you strip it all back to basics you know if you live living a life where you're not moving much you're eating crap food you know perhaps you've got financial concerns or financial worries is there any wonder why we're we're experiencing um, uh, you know an epidemic of massive proportions when it comes to the mental health subject? Absolutely, I I remember seeing a quote from um, I think it's Charlie Chaplin, um, and it was basically like the six the six best doctors in the world are uh, sun, rest, exercise, diet, friends, and self respect, and that's the best that's the best medicine you can have. That's unreal. I love that. Charlie Chaplin. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure it was Charlie Chaplin. I read it recently and I wrote it down because I was I, I love that quote. I'm going to try and find that because, uh, you know, nowadays, I mean, Charlie Chaplin, we're, we're looking at Charlie Chaplin, we're talking black and white, you know, black and white films. And it's only recently yeah, that yeah. mental health organisations have been promoting the five steps to well-being as a... As, you know, sustainable method of keeping your mental health well and keeping it in check. Mm. Um, but here's Charlie Chaplin, who's had it nailed <laughs> from... <laughs> He's had it wet, nailed all this time, no one knew. Wise yeah. man. I know, I know. Well, yeah, as many as many comedians who have experienced their own forms of mental health issues are, are, are often quite wise, but we don't tend to find out until much later, really, do we? Mm, absolutely. 
So what dragged you to, I say dragged you, what? <laughs> that's not the right terminology at all. What, what's, um, what made you sort of look at the Burnt Chef project as being something that you wanted to be involved with? Do you know what? It was, so I knew, I knew of the Burnt Chef projects when I was in Bournemouth, there's people that I knew and they are still with the Burnt Chef project that came to, uh, came to join you guys. So I, I knew of it anyway, and I always followed it. Um, and then obviously when I had that experience in London and I, I always thought I did, I never wanted, I knew it was an important topic, but I never wanted to get involved in something like that without having the experience of it myself. I almost felt like I'd be a hypocrite in that way. Not that people are, to be fair, if they do get involved in it, it's great to have as many people as possible, but that's just the way I felt at the time. Mm. Um, and obviously I had that experience in London, um, and just, thought you know what this is exactly what we need we need to be we need to be telling people about this we need to be you know doing everything we can to look after our staff um, I've always been big on having a really close-knit staff group always um, full of personality um, etc and obviously you want to protect those people and you want to be able to like like we do at the Burnt Chef we want to be able to train our managers to you know to be able to look out for these things and to be able to look after the people we work with and just raise awareness as well raise awareness because i felt obviously with that that experience i had i i almost was kind of subconsciously trying to do that but just didn't do it in the right way at all and i think being with the burnt chef and being with a, a big group of people um the group of people we have you know doing it together there's something nice about it and it's supportive yeah, it's a community. It's, it's almost like a community inside a community, isn't it? Like the hospitality is industry is a is a community. We're all you know we're all in it together. But then mm. you know this subject matter has been under the radar for so long that it's going to take a big voice to be able to get get it changed. And the more of us there are, you know, each working whether it's in an independent site or on a, on a larger scale, every single voice around the world helps, and it starts to begin to create that traction where more people are able to donate to the project and, and put in place initiatives mm. themselves as well that benefit the teams that you know fill the skill gap shortage because there's a massive skill gap shortage out there at the moment with people who just don't know how to be leaders they haven't got any skill sets when it comes to managing people yet they found themselves mm. in these positions where they could be managing hundreds of hundreds of team members mm. um and also more importantly trying to provide support for those who are experiencing mental health you know illnesses as a result of high levels of stress and um and you know working environments so it's 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 great to have whilst it's not an essential quality to be able to become a part of part of the burnt chef project is to experience a mental health issue it certainly does i i say it's like a super you know it's a superhero's power because it gives you mm. this greater sense of awareness of not just yourself, but of what other people might be going through as well. Because up until that point, you can be quite blinkered. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's, uh, what are you, and I'm going to put you on the spot now, Harry, what are you uh, looking okay. to do with, look, what, to do with your ambassador role? What sort of things would you like to implement and, and what sort of impact do you think that you, you'd like to have on the Burnt Chef project on a, on a grander scale? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, put me on the spot. I I think I've always been, as I think I mentioned on here originally, really big on trying to bring people through in hospitality young, always getting that next generation. 
Um, I mean, we're only 25 now, so I've got a long, a long time to go with it. Um, but I think because of the reputation being so bad in the industry, I think we are starting to scare people off even more. And I don't think we're getting people to stay in the industry. And I think you look at schools now, I mean, we used to have, um, we had PSHE lessons when I was at school. And all you learned in those was not to bully people and how to put a condom on a banana. You know, you didn't learn about anything mental health related when that should be, that should have been in that curriculum. And I think colleges even more so because of lack of funding. I don't think it's their fault. It's just, you know, it is lack of funding. And I think if through my ambassador role, I can help help bring through that next generation with the, them having the knowledge that it is okay and it will be all right. And it's something that it does happen in every industry, but it's more documented in ours and we're working on it. Um, mm. And hopefully we can, we can continue building, building from the front and bringing people through. Well, I'm glad I asked that question. I'm glad you answered the way you do, because I have something <laughs> as part of the work that we do and as, as part of um, the fundraising that we do, it pays for us to go into colleges and, and talk to students about mm. uh, stress and, you know, painting a positive picture of hospitality, but also allowing them and providing them with the confidence that actually, if they don't feel okay, it's okay. And also to be mm. able to understand what the difference between right and wrong behaviors within the workplace is. And mm. next month, I have a training session with Eastleigh College. So we're looking to go and uh, speak to the students there, uh, first year students, about this particular subject matter. And it'd be great to uh, to invite you along, Harry, and have you have, have yeah, you as part that, of that as well. That'd be fantastic. Thank you. Damn. So um, there we go. You're, we're already on your on your mission, um, but the, that's is part of a much larger thing. So come the well next year now. Um, probably the first quarter or second quarter, we're going to be doing a tour of all the colleges around the country, uh, all the catering cool, colleges um, with a few sponsors and going in there to to do exactly the same thing, but on a much grander scale. So this year we did 18 via Zoom. Um, I'd like to do more than that face-to-face -face, uh, if the colleges will have us. Yeah. So um, we'll need all hands on deck for that one. Yeah, well, I'll be there. I'll be there. Good man. I mean, what sort of things would you like to speak to? I mean, what sort of, if you take yourself back to, to catering college or for you, it was mm. leisure and tourism, but like if you took yourself back to college, what sort of things would you have liked to have learned about at that age that would have made a difference to you? Um, I know this comes up quite a lot. I just don't, I don't think we're taught enough life skills in schools and colleges in general and about, I mean, life is, is what we have. It's, you know, and it obviously it's what we do with it, but that's the one thing we all have in common as humans. We will all have lives in mm -hmm. some way. And I just, I think we're, we're taught so much about the political side of being as a human. And I just don't think we get enough support in basic things, you know, how do taxes work and how do, uh, how do you do a mortgage and, you know, what do you need to do to, the general life tools I think we're so we push the academic side so hard and I think I know a lot of people that came out of uh came out of school and they were like well what the hell happens now what do we do here and a lot went off to uni not really knowing what they wanted to do and then they would leave and then they would they'd be back to square one again and I, I just think we we weren't taught enough about that at schools 
And then, like I say, that just some basic understanding of mental health is is vital as well, especially with the more awareness it's having now. It's even more important, really. A hundred percent. Sure. I, this is why I love chatting to my ambassadors because you exactly will will share the view. And um, even though you didn't know anything about this prior to coming on, but one of the things that I've I've started building over the last six months is a at some stage it'll be an apprenticeship for for school leavers and students. But it's not an apprenticeship well. on you know knife skills or management skills. It's an apprenticeship on resilience and perseverance and problem solving and conflict management and financial um, matters as well, like how to manage your finances. And it's small things that many people might not know. For example, when you're buying chef's whites or knives or, you know, um, bar blades or whatever it might be, that actually as a result of you paying for these things and it's because of work that you need this, you can claim that against your tax, which reduces your tax liability, which means that you can earn more money. Yeah, absolutely. And no no one really knows that. Not many people know it. No, no one does. And it's important that we start to teach these kids like, right, if you're going into a work environment and they're not supplying you a uniform, which they should do, but if they're Mm. not doing that for you, then if you go and spend £30 on a jacket, which is going to be a lot of money for you, or Mm. on on an apron, then here's the form that you need to fill out. And at the end of the year, send it off to the tax man and that will come off of your tax bill. Yeah. Like, and that can be for everything. That can be for your yeah. shoes. That can be for, you know, that could be even if you have to get your all your work cleaned. You can, you, you can mm. get that. I mean, I'm not a tax advisor, but these are these are things that you only really learn once you start to navigate it yourself or through work or for, from being a business owner but i think these are important things that we should be telling our students and uh yeah, yeah perhaps something that we can do in that together as well it's almost providing them with little cheat codes isn't it of how to get how to get through <laughs> yeah it is uh it is um almost like uh, the <laughs> days of sonic and up down left right abc start but now it's like mm-hmm. actually when you leave these are the three things that you that we're going to do say to like be able to get you ahead and if you practice these you'll yeah. be well well away i like maybe that, that should lot. be the next uh the next burnt chef book the cheat codes to life <laughs> yeah although god where do you where do you start and where the hell do you finish as well because god knows i don't have them yeah, all yet that's true well, that's okay quite... that means we've got a volume one a volume two it's going to be endless so <laughs> we can we can just keep going we'll have a series we'll have a series well, it's something that one of our other ambassadors has mentioned about putting together a book of all of our ambassador stories, but also then the things that we've learned. So that's a great idea. Yeah, there we go, Harry. See, look at this. We're we're, we're creating waves already, sir. So this we're is, brainstorming. This is... We're brainstorming. Are we still on record? Or are we off now? <laughs> no, no, we're still going. And you know, <laughs> everyone's gonna everyone's gonna know. Yeah, well, this is it. I, you know, hold ourselves accountable. If you say it on a recording, then it has to happen. And and for me, that, that that's a continuous fire at my arse, so to speak. So, yeah. um, I mean, we've covered so much already, Harry. Like, is there anything else that you sort of wanted to bring up during this this episode that that other people would could benefit from, or learn from, or understand? Um. I mean, we could we could go on for hours. I think. Um, hmm. 
one thing I one thing I would always say, and it's it's a big thing for it always has been for me. But if you're if you're a manager and you're trying to create teams, you know, always have a. It's always been important for me to have a strong knit team, um, and quite often we we always hire on personality as well. You know, personality over CV any day for us always. You know, I, that's not the same for everyone. Um, but it's always fun. I always love to hire drama students because they have so much charisma, so much mm-hmm. charisma and so much fire. And it's, I love it. Absolutely love it. So that's one thing that we've always done, whether I've, you know, it's been at Babby G or it's been at, you know, Co or anywhere is, uh, is to hire through that and have, have small knit teams that are families. So if you, if you are going through anything, you're, you're surrounded by, your brothers and sisters in a way, your work family, you know, all, all my, all my friends, pretty much majority of my friendship group, but all my friends from school still, and we, we've all known each other sort of about 12, 13 years. And it's like having a big group of brothers and sisters. And I think if you can have that in a workplace, when things get hard, especially in hospitality, when, you know, you have Saturday nights, you're under the cosh, you might be short star, someone might have called in sick. Um, it's always, I think it's always important to have that close-knit staff team. I think as a manager, it's probably one of the greatest things you can do for your your restaurant, your your bar, your venue. And the same same with the kitchen, same with the kitchen as well, not just from a front of house point of view. You know, you're all in together, always. Yeah, you are. And those, those who perhaps don't fit within that mould then get seen out sooner rather than later. They're the minority rather than... The majority like if you had someone who has a uh i don't like using the term toxic but a you know a negative personality that's that's doesn't fit with those values of looking out for each other and creating a supportive and inclusive environment then uh mm. it's usually the culture that that weans those individuals out or encourages them to change um mm. You know, if you're inter- if you're interested in from a psychology perspective the stanford experiment which i've spoken spoken about before Mm. Um, but I found out on Amazon Prime, you can actually watch the Stanford Experiment film. And oh, okay. It's I would recommend anyone to go and watch it. About it, it's about a load of um, students back in the seventies, university students that get put in as prisoners or guards, a flip of a fifty p coin or fifty cents coin, um, and then within a very short period of time, those individuals were performing their roles or what they thought their roles should be within that particular environment and it was a very very interesting uh psychological psychological experiment which um when you look at that when you look at hospitality you go oh oh i didn't realize like perhaps that's why certain people behave in certain ways you know yeah yeah absolutely absolutely but yeah do definitely check that watch i will yeah i will i will Good on you, Harry. Well, thank you very much for for joining me and and also for for speaking your truth and and telling your story as well. Because I appreciate that you know it's still very recent for you to to openly disclose and talk about your own mental health difficulties. But um, you know, for for any listeners out there, are you are you, are you feeling better? Are you are you on a good good standing? I am, yeah, yeah, and I also it's really helped me to understand my own body in that way. I think before I was having a chat with um, my counsellor about it, and he was saying, you know, you you've almost got if you look at your work life um, and your life in general, you've almost got two periods. You've got the one where you were at Kota, everything was flying, you were doing very well, but you were just 
working loads of hours, coffee, repeat. But it's because you were in a happy workplace, you were doing it. Um, but also it wasn't healthy for you. And I don't think you'll ever realize that until you go into a workplace where things are a little bit harder. And uh, it just really taught me to basically recognize the signs and what and how my body responds to things. So now I can kind of tell, you know, if I've got too much on my plate and I actually did it a couple of weeks ago where I looked at it and I was like, oh God, you know, I've completely bitten off more than I can chew here this week. I really have. I've overloaded it. I've overloaded it. And I, I knew that because I, I was starting to get those feelings of anxiousness and, and you know, those, those random symptoms. And I just thought, why is this happening? Ah, I've done this. And that's why. Um, so no, in a, in a much better place, in a much better place. I'm, I'm in a fantastic working environment now for sure um and yeah no doing do much better doing much better good on you and as part of our ambassador network you you know you've signed up and taken a taken um uh, a pledge to support other people with their mental health and well-being so if anyone wants to reach you how can they how can they get hold of you what's the best way um email or social media you know my so my email um is Harry R. Kimberly at gmail.com. Um, and then I'm on all the social medias. So all, all just under Harry Kimberly um, or drop me an email. Or if you ever fancy some vegan and veggie food, I'm at Babby G. You can find me there. We can have a curry and a chat always. Curry and a chat. And, uh, and a chat. we'll make that I an will... event. Definitely. I'll be taking you up on that, actually. Perhaps after our talk at Eastleigh, we can go for a, a curry and a coffee. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. Sounds great. <laughs> Although this, the two together doesn't sound quite quite the same. <laughs> they don't sound like they should be married. Maybe a coffee and a uh, curry and a tea. There we go. Yeah. There we uh, to go. be fair, though, if you do, um, if you do like your coffee, you um, we basically do a coffee called Adderley, and it's specifically made for vegan milk. So it's a little bit different. Um, it's very nice, but it's, um, yeah, it's slightly different because we have an all vegan bar. So uh, it's coffee beans that are made for those types of milks. Interesting. Um, because mm. I'm, a, I'm a bit of a coffee, I'm not a coffee snob by any means. I'll drink, I'll drink anything from, mm. you know, the, the big tin, three kilo tins of Nescafe all the way through to single origin yeah. bean. But um, yeah, I'd love to, love to learn more and explore that in more detail because I didn't realise yeah. there was such a thing. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, well, I didn't, to be fair. I didn't, but it, it obviously just went with what we were doing. So, uh, yeah, we'll have a we'll have a pre-curry coffee and we'll have a coffee and a tea after. Perfect. Sounds great. Thank, mate, thanks ever so much for joining me. And, uh, uh, yeah, you. we'll see you very shortly. Yeah, see you soon, Chris. Thank you, mate. Cheers, dude. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Burnt Chef Journal. If you haven't yet checked out the Burnt Chef Project website, then please head over to www.theburntchefproject.com. You'll find a whole host of resources, free access to our training app, as well as free support services, blog posts, our merchandise store, and also our ambassadors who are there to support you when you need it. Thanks again for joining us this week, and I'll see you again soon.